Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Taming the Tongue. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September 13, 2009. Last month I read a book called Crisis, 40 Stories Revealing the Personal, Social, and Religious Pain and Trauma of growing up gay in America. At first I thought the title was overwrought and that the editors were a persecuted minority playing the victimization card. But after reading these intensely personal stories, I changed my mind. I learned a lot from these autobiographical narratives, but one thing in particular grabbed my attention. The 40 authors come from a wide variety of backgrounds and experiences. In many ways, they have little in common. They are white evangelicals, black Baptists, devout Mormons, Orthodox Jews, and conservative Catholics. Young teenagers, older pastors, famous politicians, and two professional athletes tell their stories. The last two stories are written by mothers who describe how they lost their gay teenagers to suicide in a brutal murder. But despite their significant differences, every single person witnessed to the power of speech. In this case, the power of insults to humiliate, subjugate, and inflict lasting damage on a fellow human being. We know the epithets, fag, homo, pervert, sinner. Imagine, week after week at church, a ten-year-old hears that he's an abomination to God for something he has no control over, who will burn in hell, and who deserves to be stoned to death, according to Leviticus 20.13. Or every day at school, you endure the same taunts by the same people at the same time and place in class, and you know that the staff will do nothing except to dismiss it as teenage rowdiness. Or again, in a passive-aggressive reversal of the power of speech, maybe your own parents kick you out of the house and refuse ever to speak to you again. This daily barrage of verbal assaults in every significant area of your life programs you to hate everything you know to be true about your authentic self. And as a result, most gay people face two equally unhealthy options. First, you can manufacture a false and increasingly neurotic self that must lie at all costs to all people all the time merely to survive. You must compartmentalize your public and your private lives and vigilantly censor yourself in everything you do, say, and feel. Alternately, you can let down your guard and live spontaneously as your true and authentic self. But in doing so, you face catastrophic losses in church, your synagogue, family, job, school, and community. For some gays, needless to say, living authentically comes 
at an unacceptably high price. In the epistle for this week, James says that human speech seems to be innocent enough. After all, the tongue is such a small part of the body. But despite its size, he says, it's much like a bit that controls a horse or a rudder that steers an enormous ship. It makes boasts that are far exceeding its size. In fact, the tongue can burn like a raging forest fire, incinerating everything that it touches. It corrupts both the subject and object of speech. What we say to one another, James writes, can be full of deadly poison that kills. James writes, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? And so James recommends a spiritual discipline that's good for our own selves and even better for our neighbor. In James 1.19, he writes, Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak. What we say reveals more about us than about the recipient of our speech. The scary part <clears throat> about toxic talk is that it reveals the character of our inner identity. We read the words of Jesus in Matthew 12. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that people will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. With our words, we name the world and each other. And at least in some sense, our naming creates a genuine reality. Once our speech and narratives take hold, they have a tremendous power and tenacity for good and evil. Our words can exclude or embrace, heal or humiliate, lift up or tear down. How many of us, for example, have internalized self-hatred that resulted from repeated criticisms from a parent? Or how many can still remember a compliment made by an elementary school teacher, even though it was made decades ago? Or who has experienced the futile attempts of chronic overcompensation that try to disprove your self-worth against schoolyard taunts? Gay people are by no means the only people to bear witness to the toxicity of talk. Our words can protect, affirm, and celebrate the dignity and worth of every human being or reduce people to labels. 
in the Supreme Court's Dred Scott decision of 1857. The court voted seven to two that blacks were pieces of property that belonged to whites and not full human beings. They could be bought and sold, but they didn't enjoy any constitutional rights. In two short essays written in 1938, the British writer Dorothy Sayers posed a provocative question. Are women human? It's easy enough to update her categories. What about Muslims? Are they human? Illegal aliens or the homeless? Do we speak about them as if they were fully and truly human or define them away in ways that ensure our own superiority? The gist of Sayers' radically simple argument was that women be acknowledged as human beings. Nothing more and nothing less, and only subsequently labeled as a class of human beings qualified by biology, culture, ethnicity, age, economics, nationality, and so on. That, in fact, is how Jesus treated not only women, but every person he met. Listen to Sayers. The many women who financed the life and ministry of Jesus, she says, had never known a man like Jesus. There has never been such another. A prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made jokes about them, never treated them either as the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no ax to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. There is no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its pungency from female perversity. Nobody could possibly guess from the words and deeds of Jesus that there was anything funny about women's nature. Or, we might conclude, about anyone else either. For further reflection, consider these three verses. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4. The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. James chapter 4, 11 and 12. Do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor?
And finally, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. For books this week, I review Barbara Crafton. The title, Jesus Wept, When Faith and Depression Meet. San Francisco, Josie Bass, 2009. It's a short book and 164 pages. The night that my first child was born, I remember calling my mother with the good news. She herself had news of her own. She had just been admitted to the hospital for clinical depression at the age of 62. We couldn't have known it at the time, but that night was the start of a long, slow slide that didn't end until 20 years later when she died. My mother was a compliant patient with her doctors, and many people of faith and family prayed for her. But no treatments or medications ever freed her from the darkness of depression. Clinical depression is horrible for anyone, but as Barbara Crafton shows in her wise book, it presents extra conundrums for people of faith. Many believers try in vain to pray it away. Others search for some didactic purpose sent by God. Still others, some attribute the plague to demons, whether real or figurative. The pious platitudes are endless. Well-meaning friends can suggest that taking medications constitutes a lack of faith. And the victim experiences their own sense of shame and feelings that their faith is a fraud. How can one stop those harsh voices inside your head? Crafton combines the personal and the professional to good effect in her short book. She served as an Episcopal priest for 30 years, and she herself has suffered as a victim of depression. She takes a nuanced and careful position toward her subject. We know the constellation of factors that can surround depression, like overwork, lack of exercise, brain chemistry, family history, and traumas. But we also know that for many sufferers, depression remains uninvited and inexplicable, no matter what they try. Symptoms are deeply personal and vary widely, and so do the ideological molds into which individual experiences of depression are poured. Crafton writes at length and with candor about her own experiences of depression as a person of faith and as a counselor to parishioners. She also includes extensive descriptions by other victims of depression. She explores the dark night of the soul, family history, suicide, electroconvulsive therapy, 
Mother Teresa's profound darkness in the book, Come Be My Light, in centering prayer. In her view, there's no reason to separate or place in conflict divine aid in human therapy. What people of depression need, she says, are both compassionate truth-tellers and competent caregivers. Avoid quacks of faith and quacks of medicine. This is a wise book that I highly recommend, along with several other titles. Peter Kramer's book, Against Depression, 2005, Kathleen Norris, Asadia in Me, 2008, and Catherine Green McCrate's book, Darkness is My Only Companion, from the year 2006. The title of the book, Barbara Crafton, Jesus Wept When Faith and Depression Meet. For films this week, we move to Britain, a British film called In the Loop from 2009. If you like British humor of the Monty Python sort and are cynical about politics to boot, this caustic, over-the-top satire might be your ticket. It comes at a high price, though, with unrelenting vulgarity from start to finish much of which, I must admit, is hilarious. When I watched the movie, people in the theater were laughing aloud. So was I. Amidst international fears about the possibility of an unspecified war, Britain's Minister for International Development, Simon Foster, let slip an ambiguous affirmation that, quote, war is unforeseeable, end quote. His communication chief, Malcolm Tucker, goes ballistic. The crisis requires extensive negotiations with fellow buffoons, spinners, and careerist diplomats in Washington, including teenage-looking interns, minutes of meetings that must be quote-unquote corrected, and talk about a so-called war committee that goes by many different names. All of this, mind you, without any regard at all for citizens who will suffer the consequences of their vanity and folly. The message of the film is that regardless of parties or administrations in both Britain and the U.S., government is badly broken and deeply dysfunctional. But you don't need that serious message to watch a really funny film. The title, In the Loop, from Great Britain. And finally this week, we've posted a prayer by St. Francis of Assisi. We actually don't know the author of this classic prayer, and it was not until the 1920s that it was even ascribed to St. Francis. By one account, the prayer was found in 1915 in Normandy, written on the back of a card of St. Francis. But nevertheless, it certainly emulates his longing to be an instrument of peace, reconciliation, 
in redemption in the world. The so-called peace prayer of St. Francis. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is error, truth. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in self-forgetting that we find and it is in dying to ourselves that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 13th, 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.